Good morning, River Church. So good to see you here on this beautiful, beautiful Texas day. I'm going to go ahead and give you a small disclaimer. Um, I got like three hours of sleep last night. So I just want you to know that anything I say on the stage, I am not totally responsible for, okay? So just just forgive me before I even start, okay? Because I will say something dumb. So I'm just kidding. And that may have been the first thing, right? That may have been the first time. But anyways, it's so good to uh, be here with you today. We're going to be in John chapter 5. And uh, we are going to be witnesses to a crime today. Jesus is at it again, people. He is in trouble. He's causing problems. And in our text today, we're going to be reading, we're going to be witnesses to a crime. We're going to be witnesses to some people who now have made up their mind they want to kill Jesus. And we're going to be witnesses to Jesus defending himself and uh, basically a trial is what's about to happen. So I'm going to go ahead and read to you guys in John chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read to you the crime. And we'll see, uh, well, we'll see what we find out, if he's guilty or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda, in Hebrew, which has five colonnades, and within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Excuse me. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up would recover from whatever ailment, or excuse me, stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me in the pool where the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Here we are at this incredible crime that was just committed. Isn't that crazy? Here we are, the scene of the crime is this place called the Pool of Bethesda. And this pool, is, as it kind of was described to you in the text, was a place, um, kind of maybe it was a superstitious thing, I don't know, um, but it was this place where people would come, and like the text said, the, the paralyzed, the lame, would come and they would hope to find healing. There was this superstition that occasionally an angel would come down, would stir the waters, would move the waters, and whenever this would happen, whoever got there first would get healed of whatever was going on. And there's even like the archaeologists have found this site and they've discovered like little like items of worship or thanksgiving or like uh, sacrifices or whatever of like thanks for people who were healed. So I don't know if people were actually healed there or not, but they had found these offerings. Right. But if you can just imagine that scene. Right. These pools and all of these people, these sick, the lame, the paralyzed, the paraplegic, all these different people hanging out around these pools, waiting for, hoping in an angel to come down, stir these waters. And then if you can imagine, whenever it happened, I don't know what it looked like, if the wind blew and they saw the waters move, just this mad dash to be the first one in the water. 
because only the first person in the water got healed. So if you can just imagine that scene, all these people sitting around, putting their faith in, putting their hope in, the chance that an angel would stir the water and they would be the first one. So here Jesus is, he comes on the scene and and Jesus would have understand the circumstances. Jesus would have understand the situation. He would have known what's going on. And he sees this paraplegic man, the man that the Bible says had been sick for 38 years. And imagine just being that man. Imagine sitting there for 38 years, day after day after day, however long he had been at that pool, waiting and hoping that an angel would come and stir that water. And then to be a paraplegic, he couldn't move. I mean, at best, he would have to crawl and pull his body to get in the pool or hope that someone would be there to pick him up and carry him to the pool. And you got to think, by the time he crawled, by the time somebody picked him up to carry him, it's already too late, right? Like, there's no chance for this guy. He would have had, that would have been his only hope. And so here's this man, a paraplegic for 38 years, sitting, waiting, hoping, for this chance. And then Jesus walks in the room. And this is really cool. I love this. Jesus engages him. A lot like the story of the woman at the well. Like, remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. She didn't talk to Jesus first. Jesus engaged her. Hey, give me something to drink. He started the conversation. And just like then, Jesus engages this man, and he asked this incredible question, do you want to get well? Duh. <laughs> right? Of course I want to get well. Of course he wants to be healed. Of course, of course he wants to be fixed, right? But like, it seems almost like a dumb question, but the truth is, is even for us today, it's not that dumb of a question. What I mean by that is I think that oftentimes in our lives, we have things going on. Maybe it's a sin we struggle with, or maybe it's something that's going on. And and if I were to ask you, do you want to get well? You'd say, of course I want to get well. But the truth is, maybe you don't really want to get well. The best example I can think of is the alcoholic who on one side knows that he needs to be healed of this, knows that it's killing him, knows that he needs freedom from it, but on the other side of it, can't let go of it and loves it too much. He wants healing, he wants hope, he wants life, but then he doesn't want it enough, right? Do you want to get well? It seems like a simple question, but it's a relevant question. Do you actually want to be healed? And then the man does this, he appeals to his dilemma, right? Do you want to get well? And then he does what we always do. He lists all the reasons why it's impossible for him to get well. I'm a paraplegic. I can't, I need someone to help me to get to the pool. By the time I get to the pool, it's too late. If somebody's already gotten there, somebody's already been healed. And what is, what jumps off the page to me about this is the very thing that he needs to get healed from is the very thing that's keeping him from getting healed. Isn't that a pretty amazing to think about? The reason why he can't get healed is because he's lame, because his legs don't work. And the reason he can't get healed is because he's lame, his legs don't work. That's what he needs to get healed from. It's amazing. And I think, again, there's, there's so much truth in that, right? Because so often in our lives, the thing that we need to get healed from is the very thing that's keeping us from getting healed. Like, just to throw out some C.S. Lewis there, the, the prideful man can't get help for his pride because he's what? He's too proud to ask for help for his pride. So here we have this man whose very ailment is the thing that's keeping him from getting healed 
And then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. And it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible where he just walks up and goes, get up. And then the guy gets up. 38 years in this situation, 38 years of begging, 38 years of feeling like you have no hope. Jesus walks in the room and everything changes. Like, can you just imagine that scene for a minute? Like, imagine what that would look like, that picture of all these people in here who are looking for healing, looking for hope. This man who had never known what it was like to walk, all of a sudden Jesus comes in and goes, get up, and now he's like dancing around the room. I'd, I'd go run like a half marathon or something, not a full one, but a half one. I mean, he hadn't walked in 38 years. You can't do a full marathon yet. I heard the half ones are easy, right? I'm just kidding. And so here comes this man, and Jesus comes in. He changes the thing. You can just... Imagine the scene, the joy, the jubilation, the excitement. It's amazing, right? Jesus is crazy. And as soon as Jesus has healed this man, as soon as like Jesus has changed the game forever for this guy's life, out come the haters. Don't you love the haters? Let me let's talk about the haters. <clears throat> Now that day was the Sabbath, verse, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. So the Jewish leadership comes out. They find this guy who just got healed. This is the Sabbath. It is illegal for you to pick up your mat. The guy's like, I've never walked before, guys. Like, I don't even know what it's like to pick up my mat and walk, right? He replied, the man who made me well told me to pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. He didn't even know who healed him. He just knew he was healed. After this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, see you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse does not happen to you. And when the man went, went and reported it to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So like, it didn't, like, immediately Jesus heals this guy and and. As soon as he's healed, like the guy's just now walking, he's just figuring out what, how to make his legs work. Out come the haters, out come these people trying to bring him down. And I think that, again, isn't that so true oftentimes in our life? God's working in our lives, God's moving in our lives, God's doing something in our lives, and he's working, he's moving, he's doing stuff, and out come the doubters, out come the people to drag you down, or even even like life circumstances. Like it may not be individual people. You might feel like you're finally getting some traction and then here comes something to bring you down, drag you down, tear you up. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I had this guy in my youth group. He was like 18 and uh, he was a good kid, but always he just had, he just had a really tough home life and uh, just one of those really hard situations. And we went to this event and at the event, <clears throat> he got saved and he gave his life to God and he was I mean, he was so excited, so happy, like just talking about everything that God was doing in his life. He was so pumped. And uh, we get back home from the event. He goes home. He can't wait to tell his family what God's done. That, man, I got saved. I gave my life to God for the first time. And this is, I mean, he's a kid, but he's an 18-year-old man. Like he can join the military, right? He goes home to tell his family and his big brother, somebody that he looks up to, first thing he says is, oh, that's a load of something, man. That's never going to last. That's not real, man. That's fake. You're going to fall off just like everybody else. And the reason why his brother said that is because he was someone that fell off. His older brother was. And so here you have this 18-year-old this kid slash man showing up at my house that same night in tears, bawling, because it's no sooner than God was working in his life, moving his life, 
out came the haters, man, to drag him down. And it's, it's kind of what's going on in this story, right? Jesus, in these, the Jewish leadership's mind, has just committed this crime. And so they're missing the fact that Jesus just told this dude to get up and walk because they're mad that he did it on a Sunday or a Saturday, excuse me, the Sabbath. You say, so what was the crime? What's this big deal? What's, what's the crime? They're not upset that Jesus healed this man. They're upset that he did it on the wrong day of the week. And I know that doesn't make any, that seems like crazy to us, but he did it on what was the Sabbath. And, and to understand why the Jewish leadership were so upset that he did it on the Sabbath, we kind of have to step back and understand the Sabbath a little bit. So Jesus has healed this man in an incredible way. He's changed his life forever. Out come the haters. And, and kind of the crime was he healed him on the Sabbath. And what the Sabbath was, was the Jewish day of rest so on a Saturday. The Sabbath was considered sacred. Um, the Sabbath is commanded by God in the Ten Commandments that we would remember the Sabbath, that we would make it holy. And the Jewish people took this seriously, man, like really seriously. Um, so much so, like the, the Sabbath was a vital like symbol of Jewish culture, their religion. Like they had all these laws, all these rules about what you could do on the Sabbath. And one of the things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath was pick up your bed and move it. Like that's how micromanaged they did this thing. They had 39 statutes in their oral law that was like kind of sub subcategory of subcategory of subcategory of subcategory of subcategory of all these things that you couldn't do. Like they had a number of steps that you could walk on the Sabbath. Could you imagine that? Like having a day where like you can only take 39 steps. And you're like, what if you had to go to the bathroom? You're in trouble. Well, I only get two potty breaks today, right? It's crazy. It's so like, the, and, I, and I, I want you to understand kind of the gravity of this. This was a big deal to mess this up on the Saturday, to do this on the Sabbath. Like the Sabbath is taken so seriously in Jewish culture, even today that it, there's parts of Jerusalem that if you drive your car through certain neighborhoods, your car will get stoned. That's pretty serious. And like, as a side note, don't you think that it's more work to stone a car than to drive a car? Seems counterproductive. But they take this law so seriously. And so the zeal and the amazement at the miracle is missed because they think that Jesus has worked on the Sabbath. They're missing the point, don't you think? They're so, like... They want to know who did it. The reason why they're coming to this man to say who did this is because they want to prosecute Jesus for this. He has quite literally committed a crime. And so they want to prosecute this, prosecute Jesus for this. And this is the first time, like as we've been walking through the book of John, this is the first time in the book of John that we actually see Jesus's enemies come out to play. Like as Jesus has been going out healing, as Jesus has been going out teaching the Bible, he started to get a group of people who hate him. He started to get a group of people who are going to become his enemies. And this is the first time in the book of John that they kind of make no bones about it, who they are. They make it clear who they are all because he healed a man. So the crime is he healed a man on the wrong day of the week. He healed a man on the Sabbath now, here's kind of the accusation that the Jewish people come to him with. And, and really, Jesus actually claims this for himself. Verse 16 it says, therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things when on the Sabbath. So they're persecuting him, this, persecuting him for this. 
But Jesus responded to them. So they're persecuting him for this. Here's Jesus' response, which just throws gasoline on the flames, people. My father is still working, and I am working also. That one sentence, check this out, verse 18. This is why the Jews begin trying all the more to kill him. This one phrase that he just said, this is why the Jews are trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own, <clears throat> his own father, making himself equal with God. These three verses are pivotal. They tell us a lot about Jesus' opponents. They tell us why they want to kill him. And I want, I want to make it clear to you guys that this is like, from this point on, their goal is now to kill Jesus. Because Jesus makes this statement about himself and God the Father. And essentially what they come to him and they say is, the Sabbath is holy. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus, he's a smart guy. He says this. He says, but doesn't God work on the Sabbath? And you would think, well, no, but he does. Like the whole sustain the universe thing that he does, hold it together, sunrise, sunset, you know, oceans can only come so far kind of thing that he does. The Bible talks about, he kind of has to do that on Sunday or on the Sabbath as well, right? And so Jesus makes this appeal to the Jewish leadership. Well, doesn't God work on the Sabbath? And their response is essentially, well, yeah, God can work on the Sabbath. God has to continue sustaining the, the universe. And Jesus' response is, Exactly. And that's going to make them really mad. <laughs> what Jesus makes the claim is essentially, God is my father, I'm the son, and as the son, I have the same rights as the father. And if the father can work on the Sabbath, so can the son. And so what Jesus is going to say takes this to the next level. Like you can almost feel the air taken out of the room when he says that because they were mad that he was working on the Sabbath, but now he just said, well, if God can work on the Sabbath, so can I because I'm God. This just went from a story about healing to Jesus letting everyone know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, I'm God. So they've accused him of all these things. Jesus has made the stake, made the claim, God the Father can work. God the Son can work. We're the same. And now he's going to go on and defend himself. So let's check this out. Verse 19. Then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on, the own, on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will all be amazed. Check out this last verse. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to. Those are some huge things that Jesus just said. And, it's, and essentially, there's so much there, but I'm going to try to just... Break it down. Essentially, he appeals to the, the cultural mindset of a father-son relationship. And so just to put it in that time period, a lot of sons would do exactly what their father did. So if the father had a certain craft, the son would grow up doing the exact same craft that the father did. For example, Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, was a carpenter. So Jesus was what? Carpenter. 
And so he grows up following his dad, watching his dad, learning what Joseph's doing, following him closely, imitating everything that he does. And, in a, and Jesus essentially makes this appeal in the same way that an that a earthly father-son relationship works where the son imitates the father and tries to carry out the father's will. I've been sent here on earth to imitate God the father and carry out God the father's will here on earth for you. So much so that as the Father can raise life from the dead, I have that very same power as well. And essentially what he's saying is, God, let me put it this way, God the Father wants people here on earth healed, and so I'm going to come here, imitate that, and I'm going to heal people here on earth. He's saying, I don't just draw my inspiration from God the Father, but I'm going to imitate him tirelessly and successfully to carry out his will here on earth. Verse 23, the father, in fact, judges no one, but gives all judgment to the son so that all people will honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. I assure you, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but passes away from death to life. I assure you an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's really cool. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the, to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment, I can do nothing on my own. Catch this last verse. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus, that first defense of who he is as God the Son is saying, I've been sent here to imitate the will of my Father. And so everything I do is his will, right? We are one and the same is what he's saying. I imitate his will. Now he comes off with this, another pretty cool example. The second appeal that he makes in his defense is, is one of imitating kind of antiquity. And so oftentimes in antiquity, if, if like a king wanted to negotiate a treaty or if he wanted to negotiate like the price of crops or if he wanted to, you know, do something in a land that was far away from his own land or his own kingdom, what he would do is he would send someone in his stead to be his representation for his kingdom. And so this is a really incredible thing because what happens is that very person who would go in the stead of the king had the exact same rights, the exact same authority, the exact same power as the king. So if he went to that, say if England sent a representative to France and he went to France and was like, England's now yours, I'll sign the paperwork. England now belonged to France. <laughs> because he had the same authority and the power of, as the king. And his words were not only binding for the people that he was with, but they were binding for the king. And so what Jesus is saying is, God has sent me here as his representation to carry out his will here on earth. And everything I do 
is binding for him as well. Everything I do is from him. Jesus is making this incredible claim that God the Father has sent him, and he is both God as well as the representation for the entire Godhead here on earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's here to represent their, them all. He's here to represent their authority. He's there to represent um, their will, their power. And essentially what he's saying is I'm not just, that doesn't just mean I can work on the Sabbath. That means that I have the power over life, over death, over eternal life, over all things. Because of who I am, I have the same power and authority as God the Father in heaven. And at this point, Jesus isn't speaking, like a lot of times Jesus will speak in parables and we're like, what did he just say? We got to spend like preachers will have like 20 different ideas of what the verse actually meant, right? Make no mistake about it. This is an emphatic speech that Jesus wants clearly understood by his Jewish audience, the Jewish leadership. He wants them to know no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I am claiming to be God in the flesh right before you, which is why the response is so accurate. Now they're trying to kill him. Because to them, this was the biggest crime over the, of all, right? So does Jesus have control over the Sabbath? You better believe he does. But he also has control over our eternal life, the sun, moon, stars. In a few weeks, he's going to have the power to raise himself up from the dead. And then Jesus does this thing where he calls these witnesses. And I'm not going to read through all of it because it's a lot. It's about 17 verses, and I'll encourage you to read it on your own. But in, in this time period, if you had to make a claim, like, like the fact that these guys were coming to per persecute Jesus and prosecute Jesus, you had to bring witnesses to corroborate your story. Like that's why in a few weeks when we talk about Jesus being uh, killed on the cross, the Jewish people who got him that death sentence had to bring several witnesses to lie and say that Jesus had been doing these certain things to get him put to death. Because if you were going to prosecute or persecute someone, you had to have not just one, but several witnesses to corroborate your story. And so what Jesus is about to do in this setting, he's about to call an appeal to witnesses who have testified about this truth. So Jesus comes on the scene and says, not only do I have the power to work on the Sabbath, but I'm God in the flesh here before you. I've been sent by God the Father as his representation for you here on earth. And let me tell you about all these people who have been talking about me for years and years and years anyways. All these people who you should believe in. So he, he appeals to God the Father. He appeals to John the Baptist, his second witness. And he even talks about, hey, John the Baptist was sent here as the forerunner before me. It was testified about him in scripture. And John the Baptist told his disciples that y'all need to follow me because I'm God in the flesh. So he appeals to John the Baptist. He appeals to his own actions. And what I mean by that is the miracles. Jesus essentially says, hey, anybody that can do this, there has to be something more to him. Anybody that can tell a man who's lame, who's a paraplegic to get up and walk, and he does, that's a testimony about who I am. He says, scripture is a witness of who I am. And then finally, Moses. And that's kind of an interesting one, don't you think? Like, why would he appeal to Moses? But the thing about Moses is that if you were in this time period, like Moses was like the hero of all Jewish people, <laughs> And so like if you said, who are the five Jewish uh, people that you would want to meet in this time period? Moses would be one, two, three, four, and five. <laughs> like he was the man. 
And so Jesus finishes off calling these testimonies and or all these witnesses as his defense by saying, not only are you missing all of this, but your own dude, Moses, talked about me and you're missing it from him. And he says, essentially, if you don't get it from Moses, you're never going to catch it. You're never going to catch it. What Jesus has done is he's made these incredible claims. He's called himself God. He's given evidence for why he is God. He's called witnesses to testify to the fact that he is God. And ultimately, he leaves it in the hands and the laps of his accusers. I'm saying I'm God. I've defended that claim with logic, saying God the Father sent me. I've given you witnesses who have testified about me. Now, what are you going to do with it? He's put it in the laps of his accusers. What are you going to do with it? And ultimately, I love John, the writer of this gospel, because he knows that we're going to read this. And he kind of does the same thing for us and anybody that would read the book of John. He knows that we're walking through this story and every page we read, we're witnesses to Jesus and what he's doing. We're witnesses to this story. And so as we're seeing this evidence for and against Jesus, as we're seeing accusers, we have to kind of come to a verdict as well. Who are we going to say that Jesus is? Now, what we say and who we say Jesus is um, doesn't make him who he is. Like if you say he's not God, that's not going to make him any less God. But it sure will affect your life, who you say he is. And what Jesus has done here, kind of like last week, whenever he put that man in the position where he had to choose faith or not faith, when he just said, go home, your son is well, and he had to decide, am I going to trust, am I going to go, or am I going to not? Jesus has put us in the tough position of making a choice. Because what you see a lot of times is people will pull out the statement and say, well, Jesus was a really good teacher, right? And so we can take some of his principles and we can believe them. But Jesus isn't giving us that choice here to just say he's a good teacher. Like if you look at the religion of Islam, they believe that Jesus was a prophet and a good prophet, but he wasn't the final prophet. But Jesus isn't saying he's a prophet. Jesus isn't like he's not saying, no, I'm just a good prophet. Like the things that he's saying make him either God because he's calling himself God or they make him a whack job. Right? Like. C.S. Lewis put it a little bit better than I did. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. So essentially, people say really dumb things about Jesus. Here's what they say. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that is the thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said could not be a great moral teacher. Like, I can't, like, if I walked up here and I was like, hey, guys, I'm God. You're not like, yeah, Mike's a pretty good preacher. You're like, I am never going back to that place again. That guy's going to be trying to get us to drink Kool-Aid in a few weeks, right? He says, this is a thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. Like if, if I call myself, hey guys, I'm an egg. And then he says, or else he must be the devil himself. He's either Jesus, he's either God, he's either a nut job, or he's Satan trying to trick you. 
Those are the choices that we have with that. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. In this scripture text, Jesus has just laid it out for us. Who are you going to say that I am? I say I'm God. Who do you say I am? There's really no other choices, right? Jesus has made these claims. He's defended these claims. And now we have to decide who we say he is. And I want to add this as, I, as we begin to close. I want to kind of add to this. That this is absolutely a story about Jesus calling himself God in no uncertain terms, telling us that he's God. But this is also a story about him healing a man who had been lame, who had been a paraplegic for 38 years because he is God. Like you can't get that twisted. You can't, you can't lose sight of the man that he healed either. I want to kind of recognize the man that he touches in the story. And I want us to remember that this all started because Jesus walked into a room, saw a man who was in need and said, get up, you're healed. Because that in of itself reveals to us why Jesus, why God is here in the first place. Like why he's here trying to tell everybody, trying to show the Jewish people that he is God. Because it all starts with, it all begins with his desire to heal you and heal me and save our world. Like this man, Jesus walked in. He was, I'm not going to go through all of it because I could tell you all about this guy's life and how miserable he was. But let me just say this guy's life was agony. He was looked down on. He was lost. He was, it was agony. Like not only did he have to deal with the fact that he was a paraplegic, but society like thought he deserved what he got. Like in this time period, if you were sick or if you had some kind of ailment like this, they'd believe God was punishing you for some sin that you committed. So not only is he like have this miserable life, but everybody thinks he deserves what he got. And so Jesus walks into a room where everybody's looking at him. Yeah, he deserves what he got. He doesn't deserve to be healed. Who's lost, who's like, Jesus didn't pick out the guy with the flu is what I'm trying to say. He picked out the guy who is the worst case scenario, the guy who was lost. And Jesus said, get up and walk. His whole only hope in life to that point was that stupid pool. And Jesus comes in. And among everyone there that was looking for healing that day, Jesus picked out this man. He approached this man and he said, get up and walk. He chooses the man whose suffering and isolation is beyond measure. He chooses the man who's laying in his own filth. He chooses the man whose only hope was to get to that pool, a man whose ailment was the very thing that was keeping him from finding life. This is the man that Jesus chooses and he's been doing that same thing ever since. Because if you think of our own lives, humanity, mankind, creation, we were lost in our own sin. We were trapped in our sin. And from the moment that sin is a part of our lives, it's the very same thing that's keeping us from finding healing. There is no hope. There is no healing. There is no life. That sin condemns us. And Jesus walked in, Jesus came to this earth to set us free 
of the sin, of the thing that was entangling us, the thing that had us ensnared, the thing that we had no hope of with. The thing that was killing us was this thing, the same thing that was keeping us from having life, from being healed. It's what he did for us on the cross. It's what we're going to celebrate at Easter. And I think that's why we have to keep that man in view when we look at this story, because this isn't just a story about, as much as it is a story about Jesus letting the world know that he's God, it's not just a story about him letting the, know, the world know he's God. He's letting us know he's God for a reason, because he came to seek and heal the lost. I've come to seek and heal the broken, the hurting, the dying. I am God, and God's will for this earth is to find life. And so even as much as we talk about this being a story about Jesus proclaiming and announcing to the world that he's God, I want you to remember why he announced it. Because he healed a man on the wrong day of the week. And he healed that man because that's what he came here to do. And that's what he still does today. And so I'm going to pray and uh, we're going to close in worship. And I just really want to encourage you today that if you're in that place of needing healing, of needing hope, of needing life, maybe you have sin going on in your heart and that very same sin is the thing that's keeping you from finding healing. I want you to find that here today. Maybe there's, maybe it's somebody else in your life that you just need to pray for that that's going on with. or I don't know, man, but I want you to know that God our Savior has come for you and those you love, and he's come to heal. And so I want you to find that in this place today. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for the fact that you heal and you save and you transform, God. Thank you that you came and proclaimed to all that you were God in the flesh and that you're here to change the world. God, I pray that if there is anyone in here who needs healing, who needs hope, who needs life today, I pray that they would find that in you. Lord, I pray that that would be revealed in you today, Jesus, on this rainy day in this movie theater, Lord. Bring life and bring hope and bring your spirit. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.